Lesson three on choosing sides. Uh, today we're going to be talking about, remember we had discussed the body-person dichotomy, this division between our physical bodies and what uh, in what's called personhood theory, uh, that there's something else. And, and Nancy Piercy in her book has talked about drawing from Francis Schaeffer this two-story or view of the world or dualism to where the lower story is the material world, the physical world, uh, and it has various ways we can talk about that. But then the upper story is uh, subjective, it's private, it's uh, relativistic. What's true for you might not be true for me. Uh, but that's where uh, in, in personhood theory, that's the person. The person develops and it has to do with your thinking and your feelings and your awareness uh, versus your body. So it's possible, for example, and I often cite some, somebody like Stephen Hawking who has Lou Gehrig's disease where his body has deteriorated uh, very, very severely. Uh, but here is this great intellect of a person, this great scientist, who that's, the, that's where the real value is. This, the body is just the vehicle, like the car. It's the, it's the thing that gets you around and enables you to talk and and to, to do things, but it's the person that really matters. That's where the real value is. And if there's no person there, if that person hasn't developed, in the case of, an, of, of a fetus uh, or a brand-new baby even, or if that person has mental retardation or can't function or there's been brain damage or they're elderly, and as they begin to lose some of those abilities, their cognitive abilities and so forth, they start to diminish as a person. I'm reading a book right now uh, by a lady named Aronson, who's a geriatric doctor called Elder, Elderhood. And it's an excellent book, New York Times bestseller, uh, if you're interested in reading on the, the aging process and so forth. I'd recommend that book. Um, but she, a number of times, has just made statements. She didn't know I was teaching on this uh, and reading Nancy Piercy's book, too. But... Uh, would, would say something like a lot of people's view of the elderly or of old people is as they get dementia and as they begin to lose certain abilities, they really become less than a person and begin to be treated that way. So this has powerful impacts on how we treat babies, how we treat uh, old people, and how we treat lots of other people in between. And so remember, the key to understanding all this contra- these controversial issues of our day is the concept of the human being that the human being has been fragmented into these distinct categories that we again talked about upper and lower story, um, and so um, what changed this purpose? The, the biblical view says that we were created with a purpose. Remember, I used the wrench last week. I held up and said, "What is this?" And everybody knew what it was. What's it for? Everybody knew what it was for. You knew what it was for because you could see what it was. You could tell by how it looked and how it was built. And so what was it made for? It was made to loosen tight things and tighten loose things. And, and then we said if you used it as a hammer, you'd probably damage it. Well, uh, that's, I think, a good illustration of what we're talking about. In the biblical view, we said uh, God made us male and female after his image. And we should be able to look at that and determine something about our purpose or why we're here and how we function. 
so what changed this purpose-driven view of nature? That used to be the dominant view in the West, but it, um, how did the West lose its positive view of the body? In the modern age, the most important turning point, the most important turning point was Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, uh, published uh, in his Origin of Species in 1859. Now, there were others before Darwin. He didn't invent the idea, but he is going to be the one that uh, it, he popularizes it, it catches on, and we're going to see that it has an, an enormous impact. It had an, an enormous impact then, and it, it still does. In fact, uh, it'd be hard to overestimate how much impact it has had and is having on all of us. In the book, Common Sense 101, Dale Aukwas writes of G.K. Chesterton's comments on three key men who are going to, the first is Darwin himself and then two others, and we could actually make a long list of others in other disciplines, but specifically uh, Marx, uh, Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud, who are going to take Darwinian ideas and apply them to other fields of economics and uh, psychology but we could look at others uh, in the fields of education and uh, sociology and really almost any field you want because ideas have consequences. And so if this is true in the, in the biological world, it must be true elsewhere. So just a few quotes that I really like here that I think set the table for us in this discussion from the Aquist book, which is mostly quoting G.K. Chesterton. So Chesterton says, The basic cause of all the problems in modern education can be summarized in three words, Darwin, Marx, and Freud. The theories of these three men have pervaded all of modern thought. Their ideas are much alike in that they are narrow, materialistic, fatalistic, and utterly anti-Christian. Their influence has been felt far beyond their limited fields, Darwin's ideas have contributed to a blind belief in progress. Each of them took not so much a half-truth as a hundredth part of a truth and then offered it not merely as something, but as everything. Having never done anything except split hairs, each of them hangs the whole world on a single hair, whether it be biology, economics, or psychology, it is yet another mark of this sort of agnostic that he is ready to assert his absolute knowledge of everything to the verge of a contradiction in terms, just as it is the latest fad to prove that everything is sexual, so it was the latest fad to prove that everything was economic. The Marxist notion, called the materialist theory of history, had had the same sort of stupid self-confidence in its very insufficient materialism. As the one fad conceives everything about the bird to be connected with mating, so the other conceived everything connected with it uh, to consist of catching worms, it is a character of all these manias that they cannot really convince the mind, but they do cloud it. Above all, they do darken it. All these tremendous and rather temporary discoveries have had the singular fascination that they were not merely degrading, 
but were also depressing. Each, in turn, leaves, leaves no trace on the true and serious conclusions of the world, but each, in turn, may leave very deep and disastrous wounds and dislocations in the mentality of the individual man. And then Alquis comments, they have also served as the justification for cutthroat capitalism and the survival of the fittest mentality in our commercial and political relations. Marx's ideas plunged half the world into darkness for most of the last century. But in the other half of the world, they served as a justification for the extended growth of the state and the loss of the authority of the family and the centrality of the home. And Freud's ideas have led to an overemphasis on sex and have served as the justification for the normal, normalizing of the abnormal and the pervasive decline in morality. The academic community's utter sellout to these three figures has elevated science, economics, and psychology above religion. In fact, all of these three have been invoked to explain, uh, explain away religion. Chesterton says that the primary public duty before us today is, quote, not to educate the uneducated, but to uneducate the educated. One more. I'm really trying to set the table here to point out ideas have consequences, and we're living in the midst of this. This is critical. Marx and Freud, each of whom rejected Christianity, gave us theories that have been used to promote some of history's most unnatural and degrading attacks against human dignity. If we want to rescue education and our society, we can start by kicking these three bad boys out of school and letting God back in. <clears throat> we need to take away the state's power and give it back to the parents. And we need to get rid of the fads and fashions in education and start teaching the permanent things. As Chesterton says, teach to the young men's enduring truths and let the learned amuse themselves with their passing errors. This is the world we live in. Ideas have consequences. And if your ideas, if you, if you think for a moment that you or your children are not influenced by this, you are sadly mistaken. It is the world that we live in right now. And all the stuff we see, all the controversies, all the pressures, all the political movements underneath have some kind of an idea behind them. And it's critical for each of us to make sure we understand what those ideas are so that we're not sold a, a, a false bill of goods and that we can stand firmly in the Christian faith against all oncomers and do so with resolve and confidence and commitment. Darwin could not deny that nature appears to be designed. I held up the wrench. What is it? The wrench. Did somebody design it? Of course they did. It's obvious. And the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. That which is known about God, Romans 1, including God's invisible attributes, are clearly seen so that they are without excuse. Darwin was without an excuse. He understood that it appears... That's the operating word. It only appears to be designed. It only looks like a wrench. 
but having embraced the philosophy of materialism, what it, which is every, all we have here is matter, molecules in motion. It's just a physical world, just banging into each other, and random things happen, and over time, and enough randomness and enough banging in each other, and some of them stick together, and we get new things, and here we are. He wanted to reduce that appearance to an illusion. It only appears to be designed. It's not really designed. There really is no designer. He hoped to show that although living structures seem to be teleological, remember that means that they have a purpose, the wrench to tighten loose things and loosen tight things, in reality, he says, they are only the result of blind, undirected forces. Do you believe that? Do you understand how absolutely nonsensical that is? But our world's built on this notion. Although they seem to be the products of intention, that is, that there was a will, a plan, intelligence, in reality, Darwin says they are products of a purposeless material process. The two main elements in his theory, random variations and natural selection, were both proposed expressly to eliminate the concept of plan and purpose. Zoologist Richard Dawkins agrees, quote, natural selection, the blind, unconscious, automatic process which Darwin discovered has no purpose in mind. Which, of course, means you have no purpose. You or your work or your creativity or your family or your love or your passions or your heartaches or your pains or your sorrows, nothing has any meaning whatsoever or purpose. Some scientists do now speak of what they call the selfish gene which attribute the motive of survival as the driving force of life. Somehow in our DNA, there is this desire to reproduce and survive. That's the one thing now that you know the whole thing hangs on. There's no explanation of why it wants to survive or where it got that information or, what, or even what information is. Darwin's theory caused an earthquake whose seismic waves were not limited to science. It also caused severe upheavals in moral thought. If, for if nature was not the handiwork of God, if it no longer bore signs of God's good purposes, then it no longer provided a basis for moral truths. Nature is just a machine churning along by blind material forces. You are but a speck of dust in the universe. The next step in the, logical, in the logic is crucial. If nature does not reveal God's will, then, it is morally it, then it's a morally neutral realm where humans may impose their will. There is nothing in nature that humans are morally obligated to respect. Nature becomes the realm of value-neutral facts available to serve whatever values 
humans choose to make them serve. And because the human body is part of nature, it too is demoted to the level of an amoral mechanism, a machine subject to the will of the self, the autonomous self, the self-ruling self. You get to make it up and decide. If the body has no intrinsic purpose built by God, then all that matters are human desires and purposes. The body is reduced to a clump of matter, a collection of atoms and molecules not essentially different from any other chance configuration of molecules. We're not even talking now about what a molecule is. But it's... So... It is raw material, that is your bodies, for example, your, is raw material to be manipulated and controlled to serve the human agenda like any other natural resource. If you've got a pile of wood and you want to build something, there's a natural resource, do what you want to with it. Got an idea, go for it. Your body's the same way. We tend to think of materialism as a philosophy that places high value on material, Right? or the material world, because it claims that matter is all that matters, is all that exists. That reminds me, um, the the field of alchemy uh, was one in which the the goal was to figure out how to convert lead into gold. So which would you rather have, uh, a pound of lead or a pound of gold? pound of gold? You know what would happen if you turned lead into gold? You know what gold would be worth? It would be worth what lead's worth. So if, if all we have is material rather than a high view, uh, it turns out, ironically, in reality, materialism places a low value on the material world as purely matter in motion with no higher purpose or meaning at all. As I've said many times, the materialist worldview, in the materialist worldview, the universe is a meat grinder and we're the meat. The body-person dichotomy, the dualism, the division between the body and the person is now the argument undergirding the pro-abortion forces. Again, we're going to be looking as we go along at different issues, but let's just talk about abortion for a moment. In the past, abortion advocates typically denied that a fetus is human. It's just, it's just a blob of tissue, a potential life, a collection of cells, we were told. But ultrasounds have helped change this. I know at Heartbeat, one of the goals was to get these 3D ultrasounds because the, the more clearly the mothers could see the image of their babies, the less likely they were to have an abortion. As long as we could obscure that and hide that, then uh, they could be told, oh, this is, I mean, it's not all that different than removing a tumor. As a consequence, many pro-life arguments focused on proving that a fetus is a human life. Today, however, due to advances in genetics and DNA, virtually all professional bioethicists agree that life begins at conception. So we won, right? Won the argument. 
They said all dogs are brown. We brought in a non-brown dog, and of course now they'll have to concede, right? We, an embryo has a full set of chromosomes and DNA. It's a complete and integral individual capable of internally directed developments in a seamless continuum from fertilization. Instead, the fetus is treated as just a piece of matter, which can be used for research or experiments, then tossed out with the other medical waste. In the two-story worldview, simply being a member of the human race is not enough to qualify for personhood. So the baby in the womb has to earn the status of personhood by achieving a certain level of cognitive functioning. It has to be able to think and be self-aware, uh, the capacity for consciousness, autonomy, and so on. Now, who said? That's another, it's another question altogether. And where is that line exactly? At what point is it enough? But this is just an arbitrary declaration that this has to be there, but though we can't define it exactly. Uh, just aside, uh, Andrew raised the issue uh, reading the book, uh, Piercy's book of Pato Communion and how a similar argument is used to qualify children for full recognition in the church. You've got to reach a certain age where you can explain faith and explain those kinds of things, then we will count you as a full bona fide church member. That's just a thought. A good one. Bioethicists who adopt personhood theory often claim to be scientific. <laughs> Yet the theory has no support. You can't turn that green in a test tube. You can't weigh that. You can't measure that. The two-story concept of personhood is either empirical, it is neither empirical nor scientific. In, the Christian, in a Christian worldview, everyone who is human is also a person. The two can't be separated. This view avoids this radical devaluation of human life. From its earliest stages, the body participates in the human telos, our purpose, and thus shares in the purpose and dignity of the human person. Two very strongly contrasting worldviews. What about euthanasia? Let's go to the other end of life. How does it express the two-story divided worldview? Now, many of you will recall the 2005 Terry Schiavo case. Uh, Terry was a young married woman who suffered a cardiac arrest and was declared by some doctors to be in a persistent vegetative state. Her husband wanted to discontinue her food and water, but her biological family, who were the ones that were taking care of her, by the way, disputed the diagnosis. And they lined up medical experts who claimed that Terry responded efforts to communicate. After a series of highly publicized court cases and even the intervention of the United States Congress, her food and water were cut off, leading to her slow death by dehydration and starvation. 
Perry's story was presented in the media as a right-to-die case. But Terry was not dying. She was not terminally ill, so that was not actually the heart of the debate. The core issue was personhood theory. In a televised debate, Wesley Smith of the Discovery Institute asked a bioethicist from the University of Florida, do you think Terry is a person? No, I do not. The bioethicist replied, I think having awareness is an essential criterion to personhood. So according to personhood theory, if you are mentally disabled, if you no longer have an arbitrarily prescribed level of cognitive function, then you are no longer a person. Yes, sir. That's true. Uh, That's true. That's a good point. So you're no longer a person, even though they would say you are still human. Those who argued in favor of cutting off Terry's food and water included a neurologist named Ronald Cranford who styled himself as Dr. Humane Death. According to the body-person dichotomy, just being biologically part of the human race, lower story, is not morally relevant. It's not enough. Your real value has to come in being declared a person. Individuals, and of course, we're going to see later too that this, we've talked about abortion a while ago, that these same arguments are, are used regularly to, for infanticide. Um, so individuals must earn the status of personhood by meeting an additional set of criteria, the ability to make decisions, You know, a three-day-old can't make decisions. How about a one-year-old? You can. You can decide whether they live or die. The ability to make decisions, exercise self-awareness, plan for the future, and so on. Upper story. Only those who meet these added conditions qualify as persons. Those who don't make the grade are demoted to non-persons. And a non-person is just a body, a disposable piece of matter, a natural resource that can be used for research or harvesting organs or other purely utilitarian purposes, subject only to a cost-benefit analysis. Thus, we've had Planned Parenthood selling body parts of aborted babies. Just as with abortion, we're talking about the logic implied by the act. These actions imply a two-story worldview that is is dehumanizing, one in which humans have no rights, only persons do. Oh, this is not unlike what happened under the Nazis. And so there were committees for the humane treatment of the insane and and of criminals that were just basically bused to gas chambers to treat them. The only way to stand against the culture of death is to accept that all humans are also persons and no one is excluded. The secular view on sexuality appears the same body-person dualism. And we're constantly faced, even in our own congregation here, with young people who 
who have these questions. I think they're good questions, and we need good answers about sexuality, about homosexuality, about transgenderism, and about all the other things that are out there. And um, we need to be able to answer those things because I said, oh, what's wrong? You know, I don't see anything wrong with it. They're just, just people loving each other, right? But this two-story worldview, if the body is separate from the person, as we saw in abortion and euthanasia, then what you do with your body sexually need not have any connection to who you are as a whole person. Sex can be purely physical, separate from love. It can just be a biological act. Animals are not in love. Our sexualized culture actually encourages people to keep those two things separate. The Washington Post suggested that it is healthy when teenage girls, quote, refuse to conflate love and sex. Sometimes they coexist and sometimes not. The Nation, the magazine, asked defiantly, why should sex have an everlasting warranty of love attached to it? Why indeed, if the body is just a piece of matter that can be stimulated for pleasure with no meaning for the whole person? A video put out by a children's television workshop widely used in sex education classes defines sexual relations as simply, quote, something done by two adults to give each other pleasure. No mention of marriage or family or even love or commitment. No hint that sex has a richer and deeper purpose than sheer sensual gratification. This is sex cut off from the whole person apart from the purpose that God intended it for, we've now taken the wrench and we're using it as a sledgehammer and we know what's going to happen. Damage. Destruction. This, again, is sex cut off from the whole person and exchange of physical services between autonomous, disconnected individuals. We tend to think of sexual hedonism that it places too much value on the purely physical dimension, but in reality it places a very low value on the body, draining it of moral and personal significance. In the hookup culture, partners are referred to as friends with benefits. But, in, um, but this is a euphemism. You know what a euphemism is? Good words. Let's put a nice label on it. Let's call it something that it isn't. It's a euphemism because they're not even friends. The, under, the unwritten etiquette is that you never meet just to talk or spend time together. A New York Times article explains, you just keep it purely sexual, and that way people don't have mixed expectations, and no one gets hurt. Except, of course, when they do. The same article features a teen named Melissa who is depressed because her hookup partner had just, quote, broken up with her. No matter what the current secular philosophy tells them, people cannot disassociate their emotions from what they do with their bodies. 
Part of what's going on in our world is, and, and part of why the guilt trip is now put on the Christian church, is it's our fault that people feel guilty. And by the way, that's, that was Freud's view, basically, is all of our hang-ups, all of our problems is because we feel guilty. And if we could just get over feeling guilty, then we could have a good time. His solution for getting over guilt was cocaine, but that's another story. If we could just get over feeling guilty. And you Christians need to shut up and stop making us feel that way. Stop telling us what the Bible says. We don't really want to hear that. You're haters. You're killjoys. You take all the fun out of life. And so we're depressed and we're killing ourselves and drugging ourselves and doing all of that to numb this guilt that you put on us. Stop it. Leave us alone so we can be happy. In the biblical worldview, sexuality is integrated into the total person. The most complete and intimate physical union is meant to express the most complete and intimate personal union of marriage. Biblical morality is teleological. That is, it has a purpose. The purpose of sex is to express one flesh a one flesh covenant bond in marriage. So it was intended to be in that place. Fire was intended to be in the fireplace or the fire pit, not in the middle of the living room floor. It'll burn the house down. Fire is good when it is where it's supposed to be, and when you take it out and put it where it's not supposed to be, it destroys. It is far more loving Excuse me, the, excuse me, the loving way to treat young people is not to hand out contraceptives, which amounts to collusion in impersonal and ultimately unfulfilling sexual encounters. It is far more loving to inspire them with a higher view of sexuality. The problem with promiscuity is you don't think enough of yourself. You think very poorly of yourself. You don't think you're worth that much. In recognizing body and person, we can expect a deep sense of healing and personal integration. What about homosexuality? Thanks to the evangelism and propaganda of our culture, remember evangelism works both ways. Even in churches, young people often don't understand why the Bible teaches that same-sex relations are morally wrong. It makes more sense when we realize that a secular approach rests on that same divided view of the human being with its devaluing of the body. Most people assume that the same-sex desire is genetically based. Certainly, at some level, we do choose our sexual attractions. They come to us involuntarily and they feel natural. Yet despite intensive research, scientists have not turned up any evidence of a genetic cause. What studies do show is that sexual desires do have physical correlations. For example, when scientists use magnetic resonance um, MRI, they find that some men's brains light up in response to female images while others light up in response to male images 
But people's brains light up in response to all kinds of things, to fear, to love, and even religious experiences. That shouldn't be surprising because humans are unified beings. Knowing that feelings have physical correlations can help us be more compassionate toward people. We're all fallen. We're all broken. Things aren't working just right. But it doesn't tell us what's right, wrong, what's right or wrong, moral and immoral. People, uh, people's heterosexual desire have heterosexual desires and are tempted, right, to do wrong. And they are tempted to express those heterosexual desires in sinful ways through fornication or adultery and so forth. As sinners, we are tempted to many things. And yet we are morally obligated not to give in to those temptations and in fact even to resist them. So even if I conceded, and I'm not, if I conceded that there was some... uh, Somebody was born a certain way with certain inclinations. You know what? I was born a sinner. I was born with sinful inclinations. That does not give me the right to sin. Whatever the cause of homoerotic inclinations, when we act on them, we implicitly accept the two-story divide. Think of it this way. Biologically, physiologically, chromosomally, uh, chromosomally and anatomically, males and females are counterparts to each other. Um, that's how human sexual reproductive the, the, the human sexual reproductive system is designed. The body has a built-in telos, our purpose. We even use it in the mechanical world. We know that there are male and female parts for plumbing and electrical things and other type things. It's obvious. To engage in same-sex behavior, then, is implicitly to say, why should my body inform my psychological identity? Why should the structural order of my body have anything to say about what I do sexually? Why should my moral choices be directed by its telos, by its purpose? What was the male body made for? What was the female body made for? That shouldn't tell me anything, right? I don't want to hear that. I I don't want it to have anything to say to me about what I do. The implication is that what counts is not my sexed body, lower story, lower story, but solely my mind, my feelings, and desires, upper story. The assumption is that the body gives us no clue to our identity. It gives us no guidance as to what our sexual choices should be, and it therefore it, 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 your body is irrelevant and insignificant. This is profoundly dis, a, a profoundly disrespectful view of the human body. Every practice comes with a worldview attached to it. Just like I said, ideas have consequences, consequences have ideas. You can go the other direction. Let's look at what's happening and then ask, what are the ideas that produce that? Where did that come from? Every practice then comes with a worldview attached to it, one that many of us might not find true or attractive if we were aware of it. 
Therefore, it's important to become aware of our worldview. Same-sex behavior has a logic of its own, apart from what we subjectively feel or intend. And so the person who adopts a same-sex identity must disassociate their sexual feelings from their biological identity as male or female, implicitly accepting the two-story dualism that in the end demeans the human body. Thus, it has a fragmenting, self-alienating effect on the human personality. You're not using this for what it was made for. You're tearing it up. By contrast, biblical morality expresses a high view of the dignity and significance of the body. The biblical view of sexuality is not based on a few scattered Bible verses. It is based on a teleological, that is a purpose-driven worldview that encourages us to live according to the physical design of our bodies. By respecting the body, the biblical ethic overcomes the dichotomy separating body from person. It heals self-alienation and creates integrity and wholeness. The root of the word integrity means whole, integrated, unified. Our mind and emotions in tune with our physical bodies. The biblical view then leads to a holistic integration of personality and it fits reality. It fits who we really are. So we'll, we're out of time, so we will just stop there and keep moving forward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the way you made us. We thank you that not only do the heavens declare your glory, but we ourselves, who are made in your image, male and female, we declare your glory. We declare your purpose. We thank you for human beings who are both bodies and persons, unified into one whole. Help us, Lord, to see the implications of this in a world gone mad. Bless us now as we prepare for worship. In Jesus' name, amen.